By 2016, Nevada legalized both medical and recreational cannabis. But as it turns out, people are still being negatively impacted in the state for possession of marijuana. That's because the State Board of Pharmacy continues to list cannabis as a Schedule I drug, which means it's up there with heroin. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we're talking with Atar Hasabullah, the new executive director of the ACLU Nevada. On Monday, their lawsuit against the State Board of Pharmacy to get cannabis removed from that Schedule One list gets its first major hearing. It's Thursday, May 19th, 2022. I'm David Figler, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Atar, you're the first person of color to lead the ACLU Nevada. Given your perspective as a person of color, have any of the ACLU Nevada priorities shifted since you joined? Oh, that's a great question. First, uh, David, thanks for having me on. Uh, obviously, I'm a big fan of yours, follow your work um, in the community as well. And so uh, always exciting to uh, get a chance to speak with you. I appreciate that. And, you know, that part will be edited out. They don't want that's that fine. to go to my head. But yeah, no, tell me about your experience <laughs> now as the head of the ACLU Nevada. Yeah, so I actually um, I took over in uh, January of 2021, and my path to kind of get to the ACLU was unconventional. In fact, when I was initially sort of being recruited to see if I wanted to take the position on, I, I said no, I wasn't interested. And um, it was interesting because the firm that was doing the hire had asked me why. And I had said that, you know, based on my experiences, I didn't feel like my community was always sufficiently represented and supported by the ACLU, specifically this, this affiliate. But when I joined, uh, I ultimately ended up deciding to do it primarily because how many people's lives we could end up impacting as a team. I guess priorities have shifted in the sense that we're, we're actively working on many of them. And I think, you know, one of the things that folks don't recognize about our federated structure is that each state really has their own ACLU and then there's a national ACLU. And sometimes folks tend to conflate those issues. But here in Nevada, I think we have a really prominent focus right now on a few different things, carceral justice issues and the issues related to our criminal legal system, First Amendment issues and all that encompasses and general issues that are impacting people that have been impacted by discrimination. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the litigation. The ACLU did file uh, of Nevada just filed a lawsuit against the state saying that the state hasn't closed what I imagine is a very important, I hate to call it loophole, but provision after Nevada's legalizing recreational cannabis back in 2016. So tell us about that litigation. Uh, so, yeah, this is a really fascinating um I use the word loophole. We think it is a loophole. And they so effectively what happened was two decades ago, Nevada passed voters in Nevada passed a referendum that allowed and it was at the ballot and uh, they approved medical marijuana specifically back to back uh, election cycles. And medical marijuana was actually as a result of that passing as a ballot initiative became uh, sort of constitutionally protected here. And it was specifically related. The actual language was medical marijuana. Now, what's odd is that under 
the uh, Nevada revised statutes, Nevada created a board of pharmacy. So it is a state board of pharmacy, not a federal body, but a state board of pharmacy. And within the NRS, it qualifies and gives permission and sort of provides the guidelines for what classifies as a scheduled one substance. A scheduled one drug is a substance that has A, no medical value, uh, and B, can't be safely distributed. They'll say no medical or scientific value will be the first caveat, no safe distribution on the back end of it. From our vantage point, when medical marijuana passed, obviously the state constitution states there is medical value associated with it, and it has been safely distributed here. Right. I mean, that seems to make sense that, you know, if they're saying you can use it as medicine, that there is some medicinal value to it, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. The common sense challenge that's associated with it is the Board of Pharmacy maintained cannabis on their schedule one list. The other items on the schedule one list included things like methamphetamine and cocaine. Meanwhile, something like Xanax is a schedule two substance or other opioids many times that leave people in addiction. Now, the challenge becomes when police are going to arrest someone, they're still technically able to arrest someone right now based on that for a schedule one substance. And that includes cannabis. And unfortunately, because they blur all of these drugs into this provision, we can't actually even pare down how many people were arrested for cannabis possession specifically because it's blurred as this like lump block in the district attorney's office has not made records clear and transparent with respect to the the specific categories of drugs that fell within that classification. One of the reasons why we ended up here is our partners over at the CEIC who we're representing here, that's the cannabis equity and inclusion community, have dealt with countless people that have come to them that said during the last two decades, they've had people that were arrested for marijuana. So this predates even passage of recreational marijuana, right? This is going back to medical and the fact that there is medical value and they still maintained it on the schedule one list. And as a result, people were still getting arrested for it and prosecuted for it. Right. And I think it's pretty much a given. Uh, I would challenge anyone to come forward with different information. But those arrests for marijuana possession or involving marijuana were disproportionately levied against people of color. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the war on drugs was racist from the beginning. Uh, Our organizations made that clear. And unfortunately, Nevada law has played into that war on drugs by continuing to have cannabis on the Schedule 1 list. The number of people who are people of color that have been stopped, low-income folks as well, who have been stopped as a result of cannabis possession and prosecuted for such is ridiculous. And, And really, We've even recently seen Metro officers, we got complaint recently that Metro officers were engaged in a buy and bust and the underlying drug was marijuana. Yeah, I mean, I understand to a degree and, you know, I'm a defense attorney, so I don't agree with it, but I understand that they're still pursuing sales as opposed to mere possession. But I think that gets to the heart of of your lawsuit. And I want to clarify that a little bit. Why are Uh, is the Schedule 1 designation by the Board of Pharmacy important to all the other things that we're talking about? So from an overall holistic standpoint, the impact on people's lives that have been charged with marijuana offenses has led to disastrous outcomes. Um, Those individuals end up having challenges later on, whether they're in the workplace and they're applying for jobs. They now have a record because they've been prosecuted for a drug-related offense. And even moreover, when you're prosecuted for possession or sale of a Schedule 1 controlled substance, you can't tell if that's meth marijuana, cocaine, or anything else. Hmm. So it raises questions for folks. So they're, they're categorized here. Meanwhile, we have dispensaries making millions of dollars off of the same product. Do we have people invested in it? And so it's, it's from our vantage point, it's such an inequity. They should have removed this list and done an evaluation independently 20 years ago. Now, 
the federal law is the federal law. We're not challenging it at the federal level, but there's no reason that Nevada law in a in an agency of the executive branch of government here, like the Board of Pharmacy, should have the autonomy to get to decide what constitutes a Schedule One substance when Nevada voters and the Nevada Constitution has already made it clear that there is the provisions that allow for such accepted medical use related to this particular substance. So now you have this lawsuit and it's against the Board of Pharmacy and uh, the bottom line of it is you're trying to get the Board of Pharmacy to recategorize cannabis out of Schedule One. One of the plaintiffs alongside the uh, CEIC is a private citizen of Clark County, a man named Antoine Poole. What, what's his story and why is he involved in this lawsuit? Yeah, so, um, and just one point of clarification, we're not only seeking to have the Board of Pharmacy have this removed as a from the Schedule One list, we're seeking a finding that keeping this on any schedule list at this point, because the schedules run from one through five, mm-hmm. um, but seeking uh, a ruling that the Schedule One addition since medical marijuana passed was unconstitutional. Oh. So the retroactive effect could be significant and it would date back to the passage. That was our, our big push because of the countless lives it's impacted. But Mr. Poole's story, um, you know, we recently connected and he, he shared some of the impact it had on him, sleepless nights, the fact that he has a record attached to his name now, the stigma that's associated with it, and the fact that, you know, all he had, and he comes out and then, you know, he looks around and there's dispensaries and there's people making millions of dollars off of what he was prosecuted for. It's a drain on resources within the system to do this. It's harmful to communities of color that have been targeted by the war on drugs. And the Board of Pharmacy really has no place in in sort of ignoring the will of Nevada voters. I mean, they're a state agency and they're not the end all be all, but seems they seem to think they are by maintaining this on the list. They could have easily pulled it. One other thing that I wanted to mention about the case, which I found appalling, we haven't put it out in the press yet. I found this appalling. Christy Craig was assigned the judge on this case and the Board of Pharmacy filed a preemptory challenge to remove her off the case. Mm. That I think is telling and speaks a lot about what their viewpoints are and their desire and need to sort of have a conservative judge that they may end up wanting on the bench look at this. Not to say that she would have been biased in any fashion, but why why is the state agency challenging the judge on the case? We wouldn't have done that. Yeah. And just to unpack that for the the lay listener, Christy Craig is a district court judge who was originally assigned your case. Uh, she was mostly a career known as a career public defender, but one who was heavily involved in issues such as mental health, et cetera. I, I guess the point you're making is why would a state agency care about who the judge was per se? Uh, that's really interesting. And it really speaks volumes about where government lies in terms of these issues. I mean, these state agencies are supposed to be serving the will of the people of Nevada and Nevada voters. And again, they're constructed under the state of Nevada. But instead of doing that, they take such radical action as to try to have a qualified, competent judge removed from the case because she has a background in this area and understands the issues better than most. Wow. That, that is pretty stark. And uh, uh, yet another conversation for another day. And I appreciate that Mr. Poole, I, I believe he was originally charged with sale of marijuana. He ultimately pled to felony possession of a Schedule One drug. And in this case, it is marijuana because it is a Schedule One drug uh, and it has caused him great hardship. And then when the state under Governor Sisolak uh, formally forgave more than 15,000 people uh, and their marijuana possession convictions as part of his role in the pardons, 
Uh, that did not include people who had felonies like Mr. Poole. So he does still have that on his record. And, and that's one of the things that you are trying to seek relief from through this litigation. Is that fair? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. But it's also my understanding, though, as an attorney, as someone who talks with law enforcement and and is in courtrooms, that people aren't being per se arrested for mere possession of marijuana these days. But uh, from what I'm gathering from what you're saying, that it's still a likelihood in some situations out there. Yeah. Um, the biggest challenge here is there's no way to know. I mean, the data there, they're not aggregating by drug class and they're not sharing that data. Really what the Board of Pharmacy should have done if this was such a pervasive problem was make that data available if we recognize there were so many instances of abuse of cannabis that are occurring within the community. Law enforcement and the DA could have done the same. Unfortunately, what we have is everything's lumped together under Schedule 1. And we have recognized, at least from a few of these incidents and folks we've spoken to, that the narrative that law enforcement has put out, that they're not, you know, they're not stopping people or arresting people for simple possession of marijuana, that sort of is just not true. I mean, we've encountered people who have complained to our office that they have been um, stopped, cited for possession. Um, and whether it's sale or not of a Schedule One substance, you know, again, that's up to the legislature to go and provide a category if they wanted to do such with respect to a non-taxable item or some other feature. But Nevada voters have already made it clear that marijuana does have medical value and specifically listed as medical marijuana. And so from a legal perspective, from our vantage point, it's just simply absurd to have this sort of scenario perpetuate. It would be really interesting if law enforcement was able to turn over data for the number of marijuana stops they've had. But again, we haven't seen any of that data made transparent, specifically with respect to cannabis possession and or sale. It'll be lumped into the overall aggregate number alongside every other drug that's in the Schedule 1 list that doesn't necessarily have the same basis. And the other thing that's associated with it is from our vantage point, they were supposed to do an audit yearly of their, their list. They haven't shared those records about whether there should be changed. I don't even know if they've had dialogue with respect to whether or not they should maintain uh, cannabis on their Schedule 1 list. And so what we end up seeing here is whether it's, you know, direct, um, sort of a direct action on, on law enforcement's end to pursue those that they view as being unsavory and marijuana possession uh, may end up leading them to be able to jump in and stop folks and, and go after them for that grounds, or as part of a larger case to be able to investigate people will recognize the same. But in any event, the impact on people is terrible, and it's not something that from our vantage point is legal. I want to ask also, if you're successful in this litigation, you know, cannabis, marijuana, uh, it, it is like a little bit of an octopus in a lot of our laws. And we haven't talked about it, but it, it is part of are DUI statutes. Um, it is oftentimes a condition of people's probation to refrain from using cannabis. And if they are caught using cannabis, uh, people who are on probation for nonviolent offenses or for any number of other type of, of charges could be sent to prison for just using the legal substance of, of cannabis. Uh, do you think that this lawsuit will uh, impact those scenarios? And, and if not, why not? Not so much on the probation end. I don't, I don't really see a huge impact here. But what I can say on two fronts is that um, if there was a directive that said refrain from you know using any uncontrolled substances, this would effect, effectively deal with that. The bigger issue, though, is that if there's a finding of unconstitutionality dating back to 
when uh, medical marijuana was enshrined in, in our state law, that has a huge impact because those records at that point uh, provide the ability for folks to go, go and get those records clear. You know, we would have loved to have seen um, the legislature take this this issue up before, but I think a lot of folks are just unaware of, of the fact that this is still happening in our community. Most folks assume that because marijuana not only was approved medically under Nevada law, but when recreational uh, cannabis ended up coming forward. After that, most folks' opinion is that this isn't still an issue and that people are no longer impacted by this. But the lingering impact from the last two decades and more of these policies uh, remains on the books. And so the impact that could it, it could have on individual lives, like the lives of Mr. Poole and others that the CEIC is working with, um, would be really, really significant. And unfortunately, because everything's lumped into this blanket category, and this is a loophole that exists the wider community in Nevada does not know about the risks associated with, for instance, if you know if you end up sell somebody whatever the case is twenty dollars worth of weed, who would have guessed right now? Most folks in Nevada would not assume that automatically you might be subject to a felony at that point, and so it sort of becomes absurd when we we think about it in those basic constructs. But and, and it might be marijuana that you just purchased for $20 from Correct. the legal dispensary. And then your friend says, oh, can I have some of that? And you're like, sure, Venmo me 20 bucks. That could be felony yep. conduct. Wow. Yep. And, um, and whether, you know, whether it's enforced or, you know, and, and the, the biggest challenge is we won't know the full scope of it, full scope of how deeply this ends up going. And I recognize law enforcement's narrative is like, well, we're not touching that. We're not touching that. But then why are buy and bust being conducted when marijuana is at issue, right? These are, it's the lowest hanging fruit for law, law enforcement to go after people that they they want to see off the streets. And so another basis to, to stop people, to investigate people and something that's had a really detrimental impact on folks' lives. And most folks would assume you're safe because recreational marijuana is a thing in Nevada and people are invested in it. So what else is there left to do to help repair the lives of Nevadans who this war on drugs is impacted in ways based on marijuana? Yeah, we need to make sure that first that this case is successful. I mean, we're prepared if we don't get a successful finding to continue to appeal this all the way up. It's it's just from our vantage point, such a such a barrier that's impacted so many folks. But realistically, afterwards, the process for those individuals making sure that you know, their convictions have been overturned, that their records are clear and that there's a proper apparatus for doing so becomes critical. Uh, but again, to the point about that I earlier made about this being disproportionate in terms of where we've seen enforcement, uh, almost all the folks we've talked to that have been impacted, including the folks that have worked with CEIC impacted by these discriminatory laws have been black and brown people. Um, and when we looked at the licensure structure, I mean, that's a whole nother separate issue to even go beyond that. The licenses that they ended up giving out were also disproportionate. There was fewer than a handful, I believe, of, um, I want to say at one point it was only one black licensee, and then it became two for the dispensaries when they opened up. And yet, magically, the war on drugs and the number of arrests that have come via this statute has so widely impacted people uh, of color as a whole within this community and provided for over-policing in these neighborhoods as well under the guise of, hey, we're stopping the flow of drugs. But you're not sharing what the drugs are. I mean, if we were listening to law enforcement's narrative the entire time, we'd think that every single uh, stop over the course of the last two or three decades was for fentanyl, for heroin, or something else. And we recognized on our end, a lot of it was for marijuana. 
Right. So it will be interesting to see how this litigation works out. And we'll look forward to having you back to talk about other issues that impact the citizens through the lens of the ACLU Nevada. Uh, Atar, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, David. Appreciate you all. Before we let you go, here's Layla with a bit more news. Hey, everyone. So tomorrow, Governor Sisolak's COVID-19 state of emergency will end. So Clark County schools will no longer be able to hire additional emergency substitute teachers. Also, the folks at the Mob Museum think that they know who the dead man in the Lake Mead barrel might be. They have published a story narrowing the list down to three men, George Vandermark, William Crespo, and Johnny Pappas, all of whom were connected to a famous mob skimming operation. The museum also thinks that the killer is none other than the notorious Las Vegas mobster, Tony Spilatro. And that's all for this week on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson, and our producer is Layla Mohammed. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our host is me, David Figler. Music is by OG Moose. This show was recorded on the traditional homelands of the New Wufi, Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around the city. See you in the weeds. Also, the folks at the Mob Museum think they might know who the dead man in the Lake Mead Barrel will... Ugh.